Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week, you and I take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and during today's conversation, I speak with Institute for Justice President and General Counsel Scott Bullock. As some of you may recall from my conversation in April with IJ attorney Sam Gedge about campaign finance laws, the Institute for Justice is a nonprofit, libertarian, civil liberties, public interest law firm that litigates within what it calls its four pillars. Those pillars represent economic liberty, private property, school choice, and the focus of our conversation today, free speech. The Institute's litigation in the free speech space is quite unique. Their cases aren't your typical First Amendment cases when you think protest bans, controversial speakers, or censorship of political dissent. Scott told me in this conversation that other organizations, including FIRE, do a great job on those fronts and that rather IJ likes to litigate in the spaces of commercial speech, occupational speech, campaign finance, and sign codes, cases that are typically ascribed to the margins of First Amendment concerns by the public and judges, though I should say IJ is doing its best to reverse those trends and and finding actually some remarkable success, and we'll talk about some of that success today. I met with Scott at IJ's Arlington, Virginia headquarters on Monday, November 27th, because I wanted to learn more about the origins of the Institute's unique, and in some cases, controversial brand of First Amendment litigation. Of IJ's current staff, Scott is actually perhaps best positioned to explain that origin story. He joined the Institute at its founding in 1991 and was involved in all of its early First Amendment litigation in the 1990s. We discuss those early cases on this episode and explore the formation of IJ's litigation strategy before we dive into some of IJ's more recent cases and discuss some of the criticisms of IJ's First Amendment litigation strategy. Two quick programming notes before we begin this episode. Full disclosure, I worked at the Institute for Justice for about a year or so, from 2014 to 2015. Also, at the end of the podcast, I asked Scott Bullock about arguing in front of the Supreme Court, and I erroneously note that he is our first guest who has argued in front of that court. That is not true. And it's not only not true, it's really, really, really not true. Those who have appeared on the podcast or been featured guests on the podcast who have argued in front of the Supreme Court include Bob Corn Revere, Martin Garbus, David Cole, Floyd Abrams, Kathleen Sullivan, and perhaps one or two other guests that I'm missing. Uh, we can now, of course, add to that list Scott. He argued the 2005 eminent domain case, Kilo v. City of New London, before the court. And anyway, I I apologize for that brief brain fart, and we will get onto the show now. Here's Institute for Justice President and General Counsel Scott Bullock. By way of introducing this, I want to reflect back on when I was a, a staffer here in the communications department at the Institute for Justice, and my first impressions of the Institute's litigation was that It was different from maybe the way FIRE litigates or the way the ACLU litigates insofar as it wasn't seeking to 
maintain the status quo of First Amendment jurisprudence. It seeked to expand it in certain ways. Was that always the intention of the Institute's First Amendment litigation? Or uh, does it sort of a, did it develop organically? Well, our, our intent is always to seek precedent-setting cases, to really establish precedents that protect not only our clients, but people in similar uh, settings uh, as well. So we always very carefully select the clients we represent, the issues that that we take on. And as you know from, from being here, uh, IJ specializes in four areas, economic liberty. The four pillars. That's right. The four pillars, economic liberty, school choice, uh, private property rights, and free speech. And free speech has been a part of our work really since the beginning. And what we really sought to do in our free speech work is to recognize vital constitutional liberties that were being underprotected by courts. And so that was always at the heart of our free speech work. And as I said, it's really been a part of IJ since, since our founding. Yeah. Speaking of the founding, uh, Chip Meller is the president, uh, former president of the Institute for Justice and his co-founder, Clint Bullock, uh, when they were announcing the formation of the Institute for Justice in September of 1991 at the Heritage Foundation, they gave a speech called The Quest for Justice, Natural Rights and the Future of Public Interest Law. And I reread that speech uh, just prior to this interview. And the First Amendment's mentioned twice. And uh, the more substantive place where it's mentioned, uh, Chip said, when we sue for a uniform form First Amendment standard for all media, regardless of the technology involved, we will seek the unfettered flow of information that people need to exercise political freedom and to participate in a thriving market economy. He mentioned their, uh, you know, technology. He mentioned political freedom. Uh, and economic freedom, thriving market economy. So was the First Amendment litigation that you sought to do always viewed from that umbrella, the internet, new technologies, political speech, and economic speech? Absolutely. And it, it was it was there since the, the founding. Uh, Chip and Clint had that as, as the vision uh, when, when they had founded IJ. And one of the things that IJ has always sought to do was to remove sort of these false distinctions as we see it in the Constitution where certain rights are given – uh, uh, close constitutional protection and strict constitutional protection and other rights, even though they should be protected by the Constitution and are vitally important, are basically given second-class status under the Constitution. And that's true for private property rights, true for the right to earn an honest living, which is what our work on economic liberty uh, is, is all about. And it's true for certain types of free speech as well, where uh, certain types of political speech are not given robust constitutional protection, especially if it's in certain contexts. Uh, and commercial information as well has uh, for the past several decades, even though thankfully it's getting a little bit better now, uh, commercial speech has been given lesser protection under the First Amendment as well, even though the uh, uh, First Amendment itself doesn't make any distinctions between these, these types of speeches. And your first involvement in First Amendment litigation was at the amicus stage, and you were telling me it was in front of the, a case in front of the Supreme Court dealing with 
sidewalk solicitors, more or less. Yeah, it, it was it was basically newsstands, uh, and it came out of the city of Cincinnati in a case called Discovery Network, uh, which kind of went to this this very issue where the city of Cincinnati said, "Well, you know, we don't want a lot of clutter on our streets," so they just came up with the solution that. Only certain news organizations have the right to put their publications and handbills and, and, and other types of, uh, of, of speech on the streets. If it's just commercial information, then we're going to ban that from, from, from city sidewalks. And it was, again, class, it's kind of false dichotomy of saying certain types of speech we value, other types of speech we don't value, even though some of the publications that they were banning, for instance, were uh, publications about buying your home. Which is a home, which is one of the most important uh, economic decisions, certainly that a person or a family can make, or presumably your new business down the street, which if it doesn't get off on the right footing, you might fold, and then you can't pay for that. Then home. you can't <laughs> pay for the home. Exactly right. So you know, it, it really went to one of the points that we were trying to make, which is all speech is worthy of protection and government should just not be able to make up these categories and say, we're going to protect some and, and not others. And if you happen to fall into a category like commercial speech, you're, you're out of luck. So we filed a brief in that case and, and, and made the point that, you know, for instance, for the average person, finding out information about a home is more important to them personally than what uh, finding out, for instance, what's happening in Bosnia was the example that we used at the time, because of course that was at the time, the early 90s, when the when the Bosnian uh, war was uh, war was going on. Not to say that finding out about what's happening in the world uh, world events isn't important, but other types of, of speech is also very important, and people ought to have access to that. Uh, that's actually that uh, very point was made by Justice Scalia in the in the argument uh, as hopefully well. After so that reading your brief. exactly. <laughs> hopefully, after reading that, and uh, and Tony Morrow of the Legal Times actually pointed that out and saying, "Well, this is actually a point that was that was made in the Institute for Justice's uh, uh, brief as well." So, of course, that was great in the early days of IJ to get that uh, sort of uh, recognition. Uh, but it, as I said. Uh, Really went to this to this um, fundamental point that we were trying to get through about the First Amendment, and thankfully in that case the court struck down this prohibition and started this trend toward recognizing greater protection for commercial speech, which is something then we eventually maximized in our own cases as we started to take those on in uh, later on in the nineties. Yeah, and your first case was in nineteen ninety seven. It dealt with an attempt by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission to license internet and software publishers who published information about commodity trading. The impetus for that case, it was your first one. What made you decide to take that as your – where you were going to plant your First Amendment flag? Well, it, it again really captured a lot of what we were fighting for in, in, in free speech and uh, kind of the reaction that governments have oftentimes to emerging technologies. And that was something you had mentioned in, in the speech that Chip had made about the founding of IJ where we were going to make sure that as technology developed uh, that free speech and const other constitutional rights were protected in, in that context. And uh, this was a kind of a classic example of, of government overreaction to something that 
we and a lot of other people saw as a great thing, which was the development of new technologies, the ability to share information directly with people in a, in a fast and efficient way, the government saw as a real threat. And that's what happened with the CFTC. <laughs> well, I, I remember there was a lot of scaremongering happening in the 90s surrounding these emerging technologies. There was that Time magazine cover where it, it had this scary picture of a person looking at a, a, the a computer screen, and it had something to do with yeah. child pornography. Do you remember right. this? Yeah, of course. And that's what led to the Communications Decency Act yeah. and all these attempts to say, "Oh my God, you know, people might have access to information. We've got to get a handle on this. We have to control this. This is a danger. This is a threat." And you saw that in what Congress did with the Communications Decency Act, which was eventually declared unconstitutional. Was by there the, any interest in? in Chiming into that conversation well, you know, on the institute's saw, part? We saw that, and, and we kind of kept an eye on it. But the we, ACLU was doing a exactly, lot of Exactly. And, and, and you know, one of the things we, we don't do is kind of me to the, the work of other organizations. We think the other groups are doing a good job of doing that. Like FIRE does a phenomenal job uh, supporting free speech on, on campus. The ACLU, when it focuses on civil liberties. Flag does a good, burning. Exactly. And, flag yeah. burning and, and sort of these types of uh, unpopular uh, uh, speech. And they also, you know, took on uh, the Communications Decency Act. So we didn't see the need for, for doing that. But there were other attempts by government to regulate the internet, like what this federal agency, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, was doing, uh, where they saw this as a problem because now people who were basically giving advice about commodity trading, uh, who used to have to do this in the form of a newsletter that got to people usually several weeks after the information mm -hmm. sometimes was relevant, were, exactly, were able to communicate directly with people or to offer software that would tell you, here's where I think you ought to buy the gold contract when it reaches this target price. And the CFTC thought, my God, people are going to get this information and they're going to get it instantaneously because of the internet and, and email. And this is a terrible thing. So we've got to regulate it. So they came up with this idea that they said anybody who offers their opinion about, about commodity trading has to be licensed as if they were actually taking your money and trading it in the marketplace. And so, and so we said, well, you, these people aren't trading commodities. They're just saying this is where I think the market's going to go. They're did offering they, their opinion. They didn't license these newsletters prior to their going out on the internet, did they? Well, did they try? The, well, they tried to it back – this SEC actually tried to do this back in the 80s and and, and, and was was told – and it wasn't a constitutional decision. They, they said that um, they didn't really have the statutory authority to do this, although a lot of agencies still thought they had the, the ability to do this. But when it got online – and when this was actually could be useful information, they said, now we got to get serious about this and we're going to license these people and make sure that um, not anybody could just offer their opinion about, uh, about commodity trade. Did they go after, for example, people on cable news? I don't know if CNBC was around at that time or the Wall Street Journal columnists who give commodity advice. Well, there, there was a, they wrote into the, uh, to the law what they called a media exemption. So if you were uh, if you if your publication did not deal primarily with commodity trading, then you were exempt uh, uh, from the licensing uh, requirement, uh, which of course doesn't make sense because as we pointed out in the case and actually a trial that we had about uh, about the case, uh, that 
the Wall Street Journal and Forbes has opinion columnists in there that give the same type of advice about what they think is going to happen in, in particular commodity markets uh, for it. Uh, so they were exempt. And it, usually, it, the impact was felt greatest upon these small software publishers and newsletter uh, publishers as well. Uh, so, And it really goes to the heart of um, uh, something that the founders really wanted to avoid, which was the licensing of the press. This was something that the king had tried to do in England, and then of John course John Milton wrote about it. That's in right. This is this is one of the fundamental points of of, free, of the First Amendment is that you can't license the press because if you do that, then only the people that are favorable to the government get the licenses uh, for it. So they warned against licensing the press. And here, you know, two hundred years later, this federal agency is trying to do this in response to what they saw as the real threat of of, of emerging technology. So we thought it was a great case captured a lot of these issues, and we took on the case, sued the CFTC on behalf of a lot of these small publishers, and it actually went to trial in district court in, in D.C., and it was the first case at that time that um, had uh, live internet access for it. The courtrooms at the time in the late 90s, the, the, the trial was in 1999, and um, and courtrooms were just then starting to be wired for the internet. And uh, actually, it was the same. Our case was happening at the same time. The Microsoft antitrust oh, trial no was happening right <laughs> down the hall. So all this was happening in the context of it. Oh, what was this interesting is nineties story it's ever. A totally nineties, uh, very very nineties. But the Microsoft courtroom hadn't been wired yet. <laughs> so here they, they're dealing with this, you know, this big issue. Well, what were they Microsoft. wiring it for? What were they doing with the well, internet? Well, they were, it or? well, they were able to. I mean, you could then actually pull up things. So you had computer terminals. The judge had internet access. The the parties had internet access. And now, of course, this is how all courtrooms operate. Actually, now courts are basically getting away from paper filings. You basically don't file actual papers with most courts now. You just upload things online in the form of a PDF. The court gets it instantaneously. The other side gets it instantaneously. You get an electronic stamp, and that, that, that's right. And and here, you know, they were just starting to do this, and so we were able. And I think the judge wanted to figure out what's really going on here. And so during the course of the trial, we were able to pull up the websites, and he said, "Yeah, this is just." Information, you know, this is people can do with it what they want. They can accept it, reject it, modify it, and but this is just people offering their opinions about it. If you like it, you keep subscribing. If you don't, you don't listen to what the person's doing. So, um, uh, but it was you know a, a trial where you know all of us were online and, and and for the for the first time, and we got this great decision from the uh, from the district court reinforcing this principle, saying that you can't license. Uh, the press and the press also includes small publishers like this, online publishers like website uh, 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 sites, uh, websites themselves, software developers, and it set an early uh, precedent that guaranteed free speech rights in that context and said government can't license this. If it would have gone the other way, then this would have set a very dangerous precedent where government would have been able to come in to say, well, only certain people were able to offer their opinions online or in, or in software. Did the government appeal it? Or was they it, originally appealed it, uh, and they were going to go up before the D.C. Circuit, and then somehow cooler heads uh, uh, prevailed, or maybe they saw the writing on the wall and the way that uh, courts were going on regulation of online content, and they eventually dropped the appeal, changed the regulations so that uh, people were allowed to 
offer their opinions. If you take people's money and trade it in the market, of course, you have to be licensed, but not when you're just offering advice. So a big first win for you in IJ's first First Amendment case. Yeah, it was a really big uh, uh, win Did for Did you know us. anything about First Amendment litigation prior to this or was this – well, you know, we a were learning process. Yeah, we were starting to plant our flag in this, with mainly through the filing of amicus briefs, like in Discovery Network. This was actually IJ's first trial that we ever did as well. I mean, we, we typically uh, uh, tend not to do trials because our cases are relatively simple. The facts are simple, and we're arguing about the constitutionality of laws. Uh, but you know, we've actually had a lot of trials uh, uh, since that time, so it was a great learning experience for us to, uh, when it comes to actually litigating a, a, a case and, and how we did that. And it, as I said, it set this important uh, uh, protection for internet publishers and software developers in the early days of, of the internet. So it was a great case and it actually then opened up a whole new avenue for uh, our First Amendment we've been developing since that time is in this area of occupational speech where free speech rights basically are coming together with our economic liberty work and we're trying to defend the ability of people to basically speak for a living. And as you know, we've taken on a whole series of cases that go to that. Yeah, let's talk about some of those. So your most recent one deals, I call it, I have it here on my notes, as the horseshoe lawsuit. Yeah, uh, where, <laughs> that's a good description of it. <laughs> where it's more or less uh, these uh, this man... Are there two plaintiffs in the case? Do you yeah, well, there's the school and then we have some students that, that want to go to the school. Yeah, and the school... You can explain it better than I can. So yeah, I'll let so you. Yeah, well, it's all it, you know. It's not just that case, but it's a whole range of cases that we, that we've taken on a whole series of them, because what you see now, especially with the rise of new technologies, but also even in in, in more traditional fields like with the with the farriers uh, too, that increasingly occupations are about speech, and that people are talking for a living, and that's true of a lot of online content. Uh, and it's true for a lot of uh, even teaching type of, of, of professions. And it, there's this clash in the law where uh, by, again, certain types of speech are protected, but then governments say, well, you're dealing with an occupation here. So we can basically regulate this and license it as we see fit. And if the occupation is fundamentally about speaking, Free speech should apply to that. And that was our point we made in, in the early CFTC case that, that, that we just discussed. These people are not trading commodities. They're just talking about it. Therefore, free speech uh, ought to apply. And it also should uh, apply to people like the, the fellow in California that's just offering to, uh, uh, to train people on how to shoe horses and is, is being told, well, in order to accept students into your school, they have to pass a government-mandated exam. They basically have to have a high school diploma or a GED or a government-imposed equivalency for it before you are allowed to accept them into your school. And I said, well, listen, these people just want to learn about uh, shoeing horses – uh, they have a right to do this. People are willing to pay somebody to teach them this. The person wants to teach them this. It's none of the government's business to do it. They're exercising their free speech rights. So we sued on their behalf. Of course, this also impacts people 
low-skilled people, oftentimes people that don't have a formal education. It's a great way to be able to earn a living and are being kept out of the marketplace. Another uh, example that we have of a more recent case that really captures this issue so well is the uh, woman in Florida who's offering uh, speech about uh, basically healthy living. She's um, a health coach, and a lot of people are into this now. You know, they talk about this case sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah it's similar to the caveman blogger. Exactly case, right. Yeah. It's building upon the caveman blogger case, which we did, where somebody was offering their their paleo advice online and was told by the state board that you know, well, you can you can only say it in this way for it. He said, "Well, listen, I just want to offer my opinions." You, about, you needed about like a dietitian license. A dietitian yeah. license. Same thing is happening in in Florida, uh, where a woman is a health coach, certified privately as a health coach, and she's talking to people about diet and exercise and, and giving advice to people and, 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 um, and uh, kind of coaching them uh, as to how to live a better and, and, and healthier life. She was, ironically enough, doing this in California without any problem whatsoever. Her husband's in the military. He's transferred uh, to, um, to Florida, and uh, she goes, starts doing the same thing in Florida, and she's turned in. Was she turned in by, a, of course, a disgruntled member of the public? Absolutely not. Her competitors. <laughs> she was turned in by a licensed dietitian yeah. who was saying that, well, you have to be licensed by the Department of Health to do this. The Department of Health ended up doing a sting operation on her uh, to uh, find out what she was doing. Where an investigator actually contacted her posing as a potential client and, and, and doing this and then was issued a cease and desist uh, a letter saying that you're not a licensed dietitian. In order to become a dietitian in, in, uh, uh, in Florida, you have to have a degree in health or dietetics. You have to apprentice for a significant period of time under a licensed dietitian. You have to pass an exam, pay fees, all of this. And of course, all she's doing is offering her opinion. She's not claiming she's a licensed dietitian. There's no uh, claim is there of money fraud changing or hands? anything like that. They are paying her for yeah. it. I mean, they're, they are paying. That's the, the, that wasn't happening in the caveman blogger. That's yes. right. Well, with the, part of the caveman case, they actually were. People, you could, he was offering his own opinion about it, and you could pay it, though, for more personalized advice uh, for it. So, and they were upset about that as well. So, people are, are offering her uh, compensation. But again, it's just to, you know, here's how I, how I think you could eat healthier. Uh, you know, here's an exercise routine that might that might work for you. Uh, for it. It's basically just kind of encouraging people, checking in with people, and some people need that nudge in order to in order to stay on target uh, for these things. But what's interesting about this uh, too is that she is just offering her opinion. And it goes to, as I said, this this um, a combination of uh, this uh, Assault we see upon uh, people that are trying to earn an honest living through occup and, and, and are being faced with occupational licensure. But it's even one step beyond that because here she's actually just speaking. It's pure speech, and the government's still saying you need to have a license to do it. What would you say to people who say, well, Scott, you're a lawyer and all you're doing yeah. is just speaking? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I actually think that um, uh, there are certain instances where the government is regulating the legal profession in a way that impacts free speech rights because sometimes uh, lawyers are um, – 
are, and actually, there's been some legal software, for instance, that's gotten in trouble. Like LegalZoom uh, or something? Yeah, exactly, by a c- certain state bars that have said, well, you're engaged in the unauthorized practice of law. Uh, and what you're oftentimes seeing is that one of the great things about technology is that it allows you to do for yourself what you once had to hire a professional to do for you. And this is clashing with these licensing regimes that say, well, you have to be licensed by us and you have to meet certain uh, uh, qualifications, even though for the most part what these people are doing is they're actually doing it on their own just with the help of, 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 of technology. Lawyers are a little bit different because oftentimes what lawyers are doing, you're acting as a representative of somebody, you're acting as a fiduciary to somebody, you're forming a, a relationship uh, with them, and then that is makes for a stronger argument for licensing and, 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 and regulation. But in the case, for instance, of like the, 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 the caveman blogger or the woman who's offering uh, diet advice in, in Florida, She's just offering her opinion. People can do with it as they wish. She's not in any way kind of taking their affairs under her uh, under her own hand and, and representing. In the her. same way, maybe a medical professional, like your doctor, would be. You know, if there, would you say a do, you know if I'm going to my doctor and I have a cold or the flu or what I think is a cold or a flu and I go for advice as what that as to what that is, would you say? That should come under the protection of the First Amendment as well, up until the point, presumably, where they start prescribing medicine. Yeah, I mean, it's and this is what we're actually arguing in a lot of these cases is that courts should look at this to see what the justifications are for it, rather than what governments want courts to do, which is to basically say, "Oh, this is about an occupation." then there's no free speech protection for this whatsoever. We can regulate this just as if we're regulating a doctor or a lawyer or somebody who's really kind of exercising judgment on people that might be a life and death matter where there's financial uh, responsibility like a lawyer might be doing uh, in in representing you. Um, There should not just be this rubber stamp. There should be actual scrutiny where the government has to prove like, well, hey, here we're talking about people's health and well-being and there should be some real uh, there should be some real basis for a licensing requirement uh, in, in those instances um, but if it's just about speech like a blogger or like the woman who's giving diet advice then free speech should apply and and the person should not be required to get a license and you've had some success in this space as well. I recall my IJ days when we were doing the tour guide cases and you're still doing the tour guide cases. And we had this great SACO, which IJ is IJ's jargon for talking point and strategic overriding communications. You remember it, Nico. All right. Good deal. The the talking point was tour guides just tell stories. And in America, you shouldn't need a license to tell a story. And uh, where, where have these Licensure program has been struck down. Savannah. That's right. Yeah, there, there, we have a couple cases that are pending right now. We're actually going to trial in our, our, our challenger in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. That's that's right. Uh, Philadelphia repealed theirs once we filed a lawsuit against it. Washington D.C. Um, we got uh, Bob McNamara and the team here uh, got that law struck a down. Big in, win at the circuit a, court. A big win at the circuit court. Uh, unfortunately, the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans went in the opposite direction. Upheld the law. There, uh, so you know, at a certain point, the Supreme Court might step in. But yeah, it's another classic example of where the government is trying to license what really is just speech. In the same way that somebody might a stand-up comedian might be uh, offering uh, offering jokes, a tour guide is just telling you stories about 
the, the you know the history of the of of the city. Um, you know, there's all kinds of ghost stories, which are clearly not true, but you know, at least some people are interested in it. There's some there's some history behind that as well, and you just ought to be free to offer your opinions on this, and you should not be required to get a license in order to just exercise your speech. You mentioned that you want courts when they're looking at these cases to take more or less a fact-intensive approach to analyzing whether these regulations are necessary. Uh, you know, they more or less need to be narrowly tailored to serve a significant government interest, and they can't overburden speech. Are you trying to take a First Amendment backdoor to get after these these economic liberty cases that you pursue in your other pillar to set set the scene, and you can probably explain it better than I could. In these economic liberty cases, um, the government needs a rational basis by which to regulate um, your economic activity. But when we're analyzing speech, the courts take what's either intermediate or strict scrutiny in analyzing whether the regulations of speech pass constitutional muster. And in those cases, it's much higher bar for the government to reach. So if you can somehow place the mantle of the First Amendment on your occupation, it becomes much harder, therefore, for the government to regulate it. And we're seeing this in other places. Like right now, there and it's probably going to be unsuccessful, um, there's this car dealer who's raising First Amendment defenses uh, in his firing of a transgender person. It seems like everyone wants to take upon them the First Amendment because it's easier to win. Yeah. Yeah, you know we we are not trying to do that. Uh, actually, you know we we because we are trying to as you know uh, from our work on economic liberty, we are trying to raise the level of scrutiny that that governments give economic regulations uh, to mean that the rational basis test actually means something. It doesn't mean that the government always wins, that the uh, that the courts just rubber stamp whatever the government wants to do when it comes to the uh, uh, to regulating and licensing an occupation. So we're trying in those instances where it actually involves, for instance, hair braiding or taxicab licensing or casket retailing and some of the a lot of these other professions that we're doing is that the uh, the government has to actually meet the rational basis test and they actually have to have a real justification for what they're doing as opposed to it what it normally is in these instances which is pure economic protectionism but if the occupation actually does involve speech then we do argue free speech uh, uh, rights and say and, – and just if it's speech about an occupation, you just can't simply say, well, we get to have carte blanche to do, to do what we want. You actually have to give real scrutiny to this because free speech rights are implicated. In other instances, free speech rights we recognize are not implicated or not implicated to a great degree, but still the – the justifications for the licensing law can't be based upon economic protectionism. That's been our focus uh, in those cases and in the free speech cases, we're arguing for a robust protection for free speech even in the occupational context. Why, why would you say then those, uh, those people are, who are wrong, who argue that when the founders conceived of the First Amendment, they conceived of it in the political sense. Uh, you see some of this on the Supreme Court. I think Breyer is a proponent of this. He says, you know, speech deserves higher protection only insofar as it furthers a democratic interest. 
What is the, well, how does IJ push back on that? I mean, what founding documents are you looking at to justify that the founders actually meant it when they said make no law? Yeah. Well, I mean, a part of it in, in what you can really go to is just the text itself, which you should always start with as opposed to just, you know, kind of people's thoughts about this. I mean, the text itself is very strong. It says Congress shall make no law. And that should be taken very seriously. And it should only be in really extreme circumstances like when speech is really just a part of an overall conduct, uh, conduct like inciting people to, for, to violence or to rioting or, or – or, 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 or that sort of thing uh, with it. But you know, even the earliest newspapers, for instance, in the in the Republic had commercial advertising attached to it. Commercial speech was uh, bound up with political speech uh, with it. The founders were you had not to pay making to get the newspapers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, these sorts of distinctions at, at, at all. And and you see this all the time through these false dichotomies. You know, when you say buy American, is that political speech or commercial speech? Uh, environmentally friendly products. Is that commercial speech or political speech? Of course, it's both. You know, it's a little bit of each. You're making a statement about kind of your support for certain ideas in some ways, but you're also doing it, of course, to you know get people to buy the product that you're that, that you're selling uh, uh, as well. And I think the founders recognized that. That said, you know, you have to buy the newspaper. Newspapers need a way to support themselves with it, and so this speech was um, it, all speech should be equally protected. And if you look at the text of the of the first. First Amendment, it's it's pretty clear that uh, that the government should meet a very high burden before it uh, really prohibits any sort of speech and whatever medium that speech might be delivered in then too. But IJ has done its fair share in uh, trying to expand protections for First uh, First Amendment speech uh, that deals with political speech. Uh, First Amendment speech, that's a bit redundant. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> For political speech yeah. and uh, have entered a bit of a controversial area in trying to push back against some campaign finance laws. That's right. Most notably your partnership uh, with um, – uh, Center the, for Competitive Politics. But they just recently changed their yes, name. Yes, that's, so right, that's, right. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But in the speech now of the FVC case. Yes. So tell a little. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, it goes back to kind of our founding first, as well. Yeah, it looks like your first campaign finance case wasn't until 99 in the Arizona Clean Elections That's Act. right. And so so what we were doing there and and you know it's really since since our founding is is to also protect political speech as well. That's an equal part of the of the first amendment. It's it's certainly entitled to robust free speech protections. And so we were always interested in 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 doing that and and we're always strong supporters of of the right of folks to share political information in addition to commercial information and, and other types of speech uh, as well. And what we were mainly doing there, I mean, we didn't have a big interest in representing politicians or political parties. I mean, they they have large phalanxes of lawyers that can kind of take care of themselves. But what we oftentimes saw are in instances where um, campaign finance laws, which really do impact a lot of free speech rights. And again, there was sort of this trend when campaign finance laws were being talked about and introduced that they should not be given clear and strict First Amendment scrutiny. They should be kind of just treated as if you were regulating uh, the, the kind of general economic regulation. We thought that was incredibly uh, misguided. And what we oftentimes saw was campaign finance laws impacting grassroots activists and people that were on the ground organizing about politics, talking about politics. Uh, 
and um, and they were being met with campaign finance regulations, which are oftentimes really difficult to understand and are very burdensome as well. Again, political figures, political parties, it's kind of a cost of doing business. They hire a bunch of lawyers. They kind of walk them through the regulatory maze. But for instance, we started representing people that were speaking out against ballot initiatives. Uh, we had a great case in Parker North in, in Colorado where it's kind of a classic local issue about whether a certain area of town should be annexed to be a part of, of, of the city. And citizens were talking about some were in favor of it, others were against it. And, um, and what these uh, folks were facing is that they were being treated as if they were actually large political action committees or political parties where they had to register with the secretary of state, file financial disclosure have documents, have yeah. a treasurer, do all these things that that are are very difficult to understand as to whether you're even – All in order to law. advocate for or all, against an it, annexation. Exactly right. In order to speak your mind, you had to, had to do this. And of course, it had a direct impact on their ability to do it. Oftentimes, these laws, as we saw, and we're still seeing this today, are used by political opponents to silence it. They file complaints against the other side saying you're violating the campaign finance laws. And then the people are kind of uh, – totally distracted with trying to fight off this investigation rather than speaking about the issue of, of, of the day. So we started taking on a whole series of cases that went to uh, this application of campaign finance laws. It's oftentimes Byzantine, very complex, very burdensome campaign finance laws to grassroots kind of citizen activists and highlighting the impact that it had on their ability to speak. So speech now came in the aftermath of Citizens United. And Citizens United said, that corporations, uh, include trade unions and nonprofits, can use general treasury funds to make independent expenditures, um, you know, supporting this or that candidate or this or that political issue. And independent expenditures mean they're not coordinated with any candidate. Uh, so you seized on that and then decided, well, if corporations can do this, why can't you and I joining together do the same thing to spend unlimited amounts of money advocating for or against are, um, you know, our favored political candidate or disfavored political candidate, um, and why do we have to have a cap and they don't, and and also why do we have to form a political action committee to do so? So you won on one of the issues and lost on the other issues, creating this so-called super PAC. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which I understand isn't what you wanted them to be called either. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not a great name for it, but but it led to this kind of change in the in the political environment that you see today. Um, and the main issue that we were litigating about, you know, can individuals come together to spend money to to advocate about about politics? We won. And that was a case. You're absolutely right that um, that uh, attorneys here, Paul Sherman, Steve uh, Simpson, who was a, a, at IJ at the time, and a whole team of folks worked on, and got this really important case. And you know, Citizens United is the one that gets all the attention, but actually, Citizens United did not have as much of a direct impact as Speech Now did, because, for instance, a lot of corporations don't want to spend money on politics because they're going to 
piss off 50% of their of their customer base uh, with it uh, given you know the political divisions that we see in America now so uh, so the the real people that want to speak about this are oftentimes folks individuals that want have strong opinions want to uh, unite and spend their money on, on on political speech as well and that's what speech now was about it allowed folks to pull their resources to talk about politics and it led to the creation of what a lot of people now called uh, call super PACs and which uh, I think Paul Sherman told change. me wanted to be called speech now groups that's right yeah there, there, there would be a better just speech speech groups uh, <laughs> for it so um, it was a it was was a case that was a follow-up, and it was, was kind of a direct um, result of the court's reasoning in in Citizens United. But it had a real impact upon people's ability to spend money on causes that they they believe in, and it's led to a lot of very robust debate about politics and an inability, much to the frustration, quite frankly, of large political institutions, including political parties that kind of want to control the debate, might have might have their favored candidates that they want uh, put into put into power. But now people outside of that kind of system have the ability to spend money to try to convince people about their uh, about their views. And it's had a, a, a real impact, of course, on the political system. You've taken a bit of criticism for the Institute's position on disclosure. And that's the issue you lost, I think, in the Speech Now case, because um, I believe it was the Institute's position that individuals joining together to talk about politics and spend money on politics shouldn't have to form one of these PACs that you've already you know, described as being pretty burdensome. Um, but the court, and this we're talking about the D.C. Circuit, this was never appealed to the Supreme Court because I'm, I'm assuming they knew what was going to happen when they got there, uh, seeing Citizens United. They said no disclosure. The government has an interest in knowing who's spending the money. Therefore, you are required to abide by these PAC requirements. Why is – the reasoning they're wrong. Well, in disclosure, it, 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 it depends because it's the law is a little bit in flux about this, and we've actually won some cases where they've applied these disclosure requirements, oftentimes to smaller political bodies and to into ones that um, you know are basically these grassroots uh, campaigns uh, for it. So there, you know, that's that's where the, the law has actually been more protective of people's ability to speak anonymously if if, if they want. And that's what we're really trying to vindicate in, in, in those instances where – especially where people are talking simply about issues and, uh, and are advocating for, for instance, ballot initiatives and, and the like, uh, that they ought to be able – if they choose to be able to do that anonymously and not have to disclose this to the government and to have it uh, – for the government to do with it as it, as it wishes. And this is a, a part of uh, – uh, Free speech rights, really, since the time of the of the founding, going back to the Federalist Papers, which were published uh, anonymous uh, anonymously as well, and, and people um, they did not have a name uh, attached to it. I think this does have its greatest impact upon, as I said, people who are at the grassroots level, or and, and you see this sometimes in. in we see a bit of this in California, where people give to what was it the um, I forget what the ballot initiative was there it dealt with gay marriage. Someone 
donated to an organization opposed to the ballot initiative, and they lost their jobs. Well, that's because right. Because it was disclosed. It, it, that's right. And, and so this and this is you know still uh, in play, and you see this and on, on all sides. You know there could be consequences for um, speaking out and giving money to certain ballot initiatives and having everybody know about that. You know, wonder if you're a a public school teacher, and you're, um, you know, in favor of school choice, and then all of a sudden, you know, your name is released uh, is giving money to support a school choice initiative, or for instance, you live in a very conservative place, and and you happen to support, you know, a gay rights initiative, and then all of a sudden, your name is disclosed because you you gave money uh, uh, to this, and so I think that courts, um, that what what courts have rejected in this area, or sort of broad-based challenges to disclosure requirements. Uh, but I, I think what you're going to see in the future are the very cases that you're talking about. If there are instances where there's retaliation for people that are supporting or opposing certain uh, initiatives, then courts are going to give greater scrutiny to that and have at least left the door open to these sort of as-applied challenges to these ballot initiative disclosure requirements. My my final campaign finance question before I move on <laughs> to my final question. I was going to say your your listeners are probably thankful. (laughs) (laughs) I recently listened to a more perfect podcast. Uh, It's produced by Radiolab, and they they did a episode about Citizens United. And throughout the entirety of the episode, um, Jad Abumrad, who's the host, seems to take for granted that everyone is against money in politics. But my experience working in the world of campaign finance litigation is that those who are opposed to stringent campaign finance regulations don't necessarily think that money in politics is a bad thing so long as it's not the quid pro quo kind. Uh, and he didn't have anyone on the podcast who pushed back on that. He also didn't. He also seemed to presume that the more money you spend on politics, the more likelihood it, likely it is you're going to get elected. And that may be true, but we've seen recent examples, Eric Cantor, Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush, spending gobs of money and uh, not getting the seat that they are running for. And they seem to forget that there is something that stands between the money and the office, and that's the voter. Do you? And when I was here at IJ on Halloween, uh, John Kramer uh, vice president of communications here came up with this great idea to compare how much money Americans spend on an election to how much money they spend on Halloween candy, candy. every year. Yeah. So do you think, I'll put it squarely, do you think money in politics is a bad thing? No. I, I mean, because and you're absolutely right that it's really the voter stands in between this and people can't force you to 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 vote a certain way. All they're doing is exposing you to that information and then it's up to you to decide what you're going to do with that information. And I think what a lot of people who object so, so vociferously uh, to this ignore oftentimes is that having people ability to spend money on politics oftentimes increases the likelihood of getting unorthodox opinions into the political debate. Uh, Because again, if it was all kind of determined by the big candidates, the political parties, people were not basically allowed to go outside of that system, then a lot of times these unorthodox opinions were – 
are, are ignored. One of the best, I think, historical examples yeah, of that Vietnam War, is, is, that is, is, was what happened with Eugene McCarthy, who was the candidate, you know, who was, who was uh, a, a very progressive candidate in 1968, who throughout his entire life remained an ardent opponent of most campaign finance laws because his entire campaign was financed essentially by about three people on Wall Street who were very opposed to the Vietnam War. Of course, the establishment of Hubert Humphrey was the successor to Lyndon Johnson. They were in favor of it. They did not want – they basically wanted to have a lock on on this issue. And they said, we're going to give you this money. We want you to speak about this. Nobody thought he was being bought and sold by Wall Street at this point. They knew why they were – everybody knew why he was doing this. But it allowed him to uh, to then um, launch a very significant challenge that almost – toppled the hand-picked candidate of the Democratic Party at that time about this issue. And if it was not for the ability of those folks to step in to finance this, that they, he probably never would have had a chance for it. So I think the ability of folks to be able to speak freely about this, to be able to spend resources on this would actually lead to more unorthodox, more kind of uh, uh, anti-establishment voices being heard in the mix. And then ultimately, it's up to the voter to decide. Well, what about when someone already has the office and they're thinking about that big NRA check that they're going to get at their next election if they vote you know, in favor of more uh, lenient gun laws. I mean, what's the argument for the money in, in politics there? Well, f- for well, so so let's say you're in office and you know that if you vote one way, you can't count on that 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 check uh, to your campaign, and if you vote the other way, you can. Well, I mean, that's politics. So, I mean, that's I mean, that's something where you have to then decide. You know, you could say then that all that you know, just if people were giving money to certain candidates based upon the votes that they take, then you you don't know what's really motivating somebody. Are they doing this because they believe in Second Amendment rights? Are they doing this in order to get money from the NRA? You can't know what people's people's in in their heart of hearts. All you can do is to allow other folks to – challenge that person and to you know have the finances to do that I mean one of the other things too that that's oftentimes ignored is the is the advantages of incumbency too and you know uh, the fact that a, a, an incumbent has all of this these resources at their disposal in order to get out the word about what they're doing in, in, in office makes it all the more important for people who are challenging the incumbent to have the resources to overcome those advantages of incumbency in order to try to shake up the system a little bit. Final question for you, Scott. You're, I think, my first guest who has ever argued in front of the Supreme Court. You did it in uh, Kilo v. City of New London, uh, the eminent domain case. What's the most surprising thing about preparing to argue in front of the Supreme Court or arguing in front of the Supreme Court? Well, <laughs> I mean, there's what we try to do, and what we certainly did in that case is that we try to have that there's no surprises. You prepare so much in order to be able to anticipate and respond to any of uh, any of the questions. And thankfully, we were able to do that in the Kilo case. We do that for all of our cases. We are really uh, set on making sure our attorneys are the most prepared when they get before the court. One of the things that was most surprising to me when I got up there is how close you are to the justices. You know, you can really see
see them. You really see if they're, 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 smell if they brush their teeth. Ex- I mean, I mean, they're they're seated. You're standing, so and they're not that high. It's the high court, but they're not that high up. So you're all basically looking at them, almost eyeball to eyeball with it, and you're not really that far away. And uh, and so that's the thing that's a little bit jarring when you first go up there. And, and then of course, you know what the people who follow the court, you know, uh, know this, but oftentimes people think that the justice sort of lets you go on and on and listen to your impassioned oratory about something. And it's like facing kind of a semicircular firing squad when you're up there. As soon as you get up there, you're immediately faced with questions and you spend most of your time responding to the questions because the judge justices know the arguments, have read the briefs, and what they're really trying to find out is the implications of your position. So they're pushing you and pushing you on on, on all of this and you've got to be prepared Whether for that. Whether they can tear down a Motel 6 to put up a Ritz-Carlton. That, that's exactly right. <laughs> and what I saw that is you know, one of the, the things with the Kilo argument that you mentioned it's when when my opponent, when Justice O'Connor asked that question, and and she said, under your and he theory, knew he was going to get it. Yeah, he probably prepared just exactly. like you did. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Could you take a Motel Six and give it to Ritz Carlton? And he said, Yes, Your Honor, that would be okay. I saw the look on Justice O'Connor's face when he admitted that, which was our the fundamental point of our argument, and I thought. I think we're making some progress with Justice O'Connor right now uh, uh, with it, and so um, that's not so the justice you, you needed. Just, you needed Kennedy, right? Well, that's right. We had to get uh, we had to get five uh, uh, for it. Uh, but Justice O'Connor had written a broad opinion about eminent domain about twenty years before that. So you know we were uh, uh, we were wondering about you know where where she would be on this, and of course she voted with the property owners and wrote this magnificent dissent, one of her last opinions she ever wrote on on the court that really set the stage for this. Uh, backlash against the the, uh, the decision that we saw that uh, happened in its in its wake. Well, Scott, I appreciate your time, and I actually got extra time here because I screwed up at the beginning. And I apologize <laughs> Always to you, forgiven, and I Nico. apologize to our listeners. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Institute for Justice President and General Counsel Scott Bullock. To learn more about Scott and the Institute's work, visit their website at ij. Org. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Again, that is 215-315-0100. 0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews, as I mention every week, help us attract new listeners to this show. And until next time, everyone, please have a happy new year and thank you again for listening. <laughs>